Glad to see you today. I don't know if you know, um, there's, a, there's a basketball tournament going on. And uh, turn to John 17, and I'll uh, tell you about a funny tradition. So it's, it, you've seen it, if you, you know, if you watch basketball, it, you know, if you've ever seen a basketball tournament, that is, you know, where there's a winner. And the tradition, it seems normal, but it's kind of funny if you think about it, where they, the, the coach or the players, they'll climb a ladder, uh, take a pair of scissors, they'll snip part of the net, because it's the prize. I mean, it's the crown. It's like the most coveted right for the winners to participate in. It started, I looked it up, it started in 1947, North Carolina State, Everett Case was the, clo- co- the coach, and his teammates, uh, the, the team hoisted him up, and he, and he snips it. It's become so much of a deal that even today in uh, 2019, the NCAA um, championship has an official ladder, the Werner ladders, an official NCAA scissors to do this with, those Fisker, the the orange-handled scissors, all right? Well, so I say all this, I mean, the prize is to cut down the nets. Well, so on April the 5th, a couple days ago, uh, Time Magazine uh, ran this article, and this is what the article says. And then after today, I'll be done, all right? So the basketball, uh, this basketball team banned smartphones. Now it's in the final four. Uh, April 5th. So it's Texas Tech men's basketball. They're actually in the tournament. I don't know if you know this, but they're, uh, uh, they won last night. (laughs) But it starts out this way. Texas Tech men's basketball team, the parents of America salute you. Um, One of our our country's coaches offer a hearty thanks, as do many teachers, um, in the battle against the electronic device. Why are millions of us so grateful to the Red Raiders? Well, because your actions, we can now, with straight faces, tell our children, our players, our students, that if they just put down their stupid phones and go to sleep already, they too can make the final four. <laughs> but it goes on to say how this started. So they were they kind of on a losing streak, and the, uh, the guy, the, um, uh, Odiasi, who's the, uh, one of the captains of the team, he's 6'9", and he, they're on the road, and he tells all the team, hey, listen, we've got to snap out of this. And he goes around with a, a pillowcase, and he grabs up all the teammates' cell phones. He says, put your cell phone in here. We're, you know, we're, we're going to turn them off for the night. We're going to be ready for the game tomorrow. Well, they go out the next day. They win 66-54. Uh, uh, Coach Beard says, hey, that's a really great idea. So not just on game nights, but every night we're on the road. And so they take up all of the cell phones, which Odiasi says, well, that was never my idea. And uh, uh, then there's a super um, edited statement about what he says after that, about some guys giving him heck for that. And, and then he said, then this is, this is how they talk about it. He said, the, the ban, it, at first it was tough. Uh, Parker Hicks, sophomore, said, our, our generation wants to look at our cell phones. Hicks used to idle away on Twitter before hitting the hay. Actually, having to lay there and actually go to sleep is kind of different. Just so funny. Since you look at the ceiling and look at random things and count to ten or something. It's progress, people. 
This is progress. So anyways, the upside of unplugging, however, has become clear. Ever since Texas Tech beat Top Seed at Gonzaga, the Elite Eight clinched a spot, Tariq Owens, phones exploded, blah, blah, blah. He says, just to get to be able to get away from it, just to live in the moment feels great. I know this for a fact. Not a lot of teams would be happy about it, but this is the kind of culture we have. Guys don't care about it. We're locked into more important things than cell phones. He says, your phone will always be there. Your friends will always be there. Notifications, all that stuff, they'll always be in there in the morning. So just get some rest so you can cut down the nets. Isn't that great? I mean, it's mediocre. But anyways, it's a, it's a, I mean, the point is, the guy's like, I mean, the team comes together. It's like, hey, we want to be a team. We're going to make this sacrifice. We're going to put our cell phones up and, and so we can cut down the nets. Because for them, I mean, that's why they're there. That's what they're doing. That's why they come together as a team is they want to cut down the nets and they want to eliminate the distractions to be able to do that. John 17. Jesus is going to pray. He's going to pray for himself in the first five verses. From chapter 6 to chapter 9, or verse 6 to verse 19, he's going to pray for his disciples, those 11 guys. Beginning in verse 20, Jesus is going to pray for those that are going to come to faith through their ministry. He's going to pray for us here this morning. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, has us in mind as he prays, beginning in verse 20. And, And the prayer, if you want to put it this way, the prayer is Jesus wants us to cut down the nets of this deal. So I want to show you what's happening. So Jesus is going to finish this prayer, and then everything Everything is going to change. In verse 18, they're going, to, they're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus will be arrested. But it says, beginning in verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 1, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words. Now, what John means is, so John's remembering this. John's Jesus' friend. John's 90 years old. Um, uh, he, he's living out his last days exiled on a, an island called Patmos. He um, has outlived all his friends, all the other disciples. He's the only one left, probably in his 90s, late 90s. Nobody lived that, that long. And he's remembering as he's writing this prayer. And, and what he's saying is, so after these things, after these words, the words that he's talking about come at the end of 16 where Jesus says to him, you know, he's been saying to him, you know, this, this private teaching, this gathering, this small group to end all small group meetings, I'm going away. In fact, the way he says it is, I'm going away and then I'm coming back and then I'm going away again. I'm going away in the crucifixion. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to come back in the resurrection but then I'm going to go away again in the ascension, but I'm going to leave you with my spirit. And it's better that I go away so the spirit can come. And they're like, well, why can't we just go with you? You just can't go with me yet. And the point of John's gospel, and, and you'll see it. So when you read John 17, you realize, oh yeah, this has been in John's mind all along because all the words and all the phrases and all the things come together here. And it's like he's been writing this gospel out of this prayer. Because Jesus, 
comes on the scene having come from God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was uh, with God, and the Word was God, and then the Word was made flesh. And, and Jesus is going to say, now I came, the Father sent me. I don't do my own will, I do the Father's will. I don't speak my own words, I speak the Father's words. I, I don't have my own authority, I have the Father's authority. I'm his ambassador. I have been sent by him. And now that I'm going away, I'm going to leave you all that he gave me. His words, his authority, his spirit. In fact, my work is about to be finished. But the work has just begun. You're going to do greater things than I've done. I'm going to give you everything I have. That's what he's praying. And so they are hearing, listen, he says, Behold, the hour's coming, indeed it has come, when you'll be scattered, each to his own home, and you'll leave me alone. You're going to abandon me. And they think, we won't abandon you. We love you. We're going in the, you're going to be king. And he's not going to be king yet. And he says, but I'm not alone for the Father's with me. And I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. So when you blow it, don't worry. I want you to have peace. In this world, you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And that just probably hangs in the air for a minute. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. My death has come. Do you know when the hour was set? Before there were hours or days. Before the foundation of time. And Jesus says, it's here. And I'm going to go to the cross. And then he prays, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And what Jesus is saying there is staggering. He's not saying, listen, okay, I just want to endure the cross. I can get through the cross and the humiliation and the shame and all the difficulties of that. And when that's done... Father, I pray you'll clean me up and restore me to glory. It's not what he's saying. Glorify me. When I hang on that cross and I am irrecognizable because of how I have been beat and shamed and disgraced, I have let my creation do this to me. Without a word, I will be nailed to a cross and I will hang there until it's finished. Until the sin of the world, until I've been made the sin of the world and your wrath has been poured out on me. In that moment, 
in that ugly, horrifying, gruesome moment. Glorify me. That that would be the height of your glory. Because by that sacrifice, your enemies will become your friends. They'll have the opportunity. By the shed blood of my life, you are vindicated and you are seen just and righteous. And that my sacrifice would satisfy all that this world owes. Glorify me. You know, it's interesting. We, we think about glory. You know, Jesus saying, listen, do, do what you're going to do and do it in a way that you get the maximum glory. That's what he's praying for. And I just say, the glory of God might look like that sometimes in your life. Sometimes it might look like death or loneliness or wilderness or sickness or I mean, sometimes it comes and we say, oh, it's blessing. And we, the deal is it's all blessing. We've just got to redefine what we think blessing is. Now, look, you're going to get a glimpse here of the Trinity. He says, so glorify, so since you have given him authority, Jesus is talking about himself, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now, this is a key verse. And he's going to pray the rest of what, you know, what does it look like to know God and to know Jesus? He's going to tell us. It's not something you learn in a book. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. One writer said, you almost hear a homesickness in Jesus there in verse 5. I would say this. What Jesus is doing is he's worshiping in the, in the, in the, on the in just moments before he's going to come and be arrested and, and, and all of that suffering and all that tribulation and all these earthly things happen and then underneath there are spiritual things that's even greater than the earthly things. All that is about to happen and in Jesus' last moments and really some of his last words, he's going to turn and he's going to pray to the Father. He's going to worship. This is instructive for us, and I would say this, not because we can pray this prayer. We can't pray this prayer. Only Jesus can pray this prayer. But it is instructive enough to say that if we're not worshiping God, if he's not like Priority number one in our life. I mean, not just our head. This is not, not just like, well, we've got a bunch of head knowledge. We're learning all about God. But I mean, in our heart too. I mean, where we feel, and, and you know it because you, if, if you're not worshiping, if you're not worshiping God with all that you are, you, you're, you're worshiping something else. I mean, that, we're just worshipers by nature. But secondly, you, you go, you'll say things like, man, I just don't know what I'm here for. I, I don't 
know the purpose of life, or man, I, this, um, because worship, I mean, a, a life given to the honor and the glory of God taps into who we are and are always been created to be. So why did God create the world? Think about this for a second. Why did God create the world? We don't know exactly. He didn't say we don't have that chapter verse. But if you look at this, he says, I glorified you on you on, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And, and then he's, you know, this is eternal life, that they would know the true God and Jesus whom they've sent. And then later he's going to say, verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given them that they may be one as we're one. See, the reason having a triune God, understanding God as Trinity is so important is because what we realize is, listen, God is not a singular person with a singular essence. He is three persons with one essence. Three persons, one God, which tells us this. God didn't create out of any need. He didn't, like, he didn't need to be loved. He didn't need to be served. He didn't need to be adored and worshipped. That, that existed always in the Trinity. If you have a single God, well, he needs to be loved. It's like, I'm, I'm bored. So you create things to love you, and you create things to serve you, and you create things to adore you and worship you. That's not our God. He needs nothing. But he creates so that he can share who he is. He means for you to know it and to enter into it. Jesus can say, I want them to know. I want them to know my glory. I want them to know what it is to be one like you and I are one. I want them to know that you love them like you loved me. That's why he's dying for you. Because he sacrifices everything so you can know God. And so we see this. If we're created in the image of God, and we see God who's, you know, the Father is going to glorify the Son, and the Son wants nothing more than to glorify the Father, and the Spirit's glorifying the Father and glorifying the Son. It is, it, the Trinity is always seeking to glorify each other and never seeking their own glory. And yet we are creatures who live breathing to seek our own glory and to build our own brands and to make much of who we are, you know, in the whisper of time that we're here. So we're not worshiping God. We're worshiping ourselves and we're wanting everybody around us to worship us. But you change that. You move that away. Say, no, no. I'm going to worship God. I'm seeking his glory. I don't want glory. I want his glory. And you're closer to who it is you were made to be. What it is that Jesus died for you to experience. So then in, in verse 6, he says, um, I'll get through all this. Well, I did earlier, but I forgot the basketball story. <laughs> he says, I've manifested, verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people 
whom you gave me out of the world. I've made known your name. I've made known your purpose, your person. I've, I've showed them. I, I've corrected them. So the world, I got here. The world had no idea who you are. You'd be, you'd be, Father, you'd be shocked at all the crazy ideas they had about you. Of course, God knew. and I mean, it wasn't like that. Um, but I, I came to show them who you are. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. And they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me. Remember Jesus said, I don't have any words. I came with the words of the Father. I've given them all those words. And they've, read, uh, they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came to you and they have believed you sent me. You would thank Jesus for a minute if you, if you like, you know, all of a sudden you're reading through John's gospel and you read this and you go, wait a minute, did I skip a chapter? Oh, did this, is he talking about the disciples, the ones we've been reading about all along? You think about this. Jesus is about to hand off the kingdom of God to these guys. You find out from the other gospels, like in Mark, it's like just before this, you know, Jesus, hey, we're going into Jerusalem, I'm going to die, sins of the world kingdom's going to come. It'll be really terrible for a minute, but that's okay. The resurrection's going to happen and all this stuff. Somber. And they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. You know, death and burial, resurrection stuff. Can one of us sit at your right hand and your left hand in glory? Those guys. And he's about to hand it off. You know, Jesus never says a disparaging word about them. I mean, I almost would expect, if it were me praying, of course, not me, a lot of differences between me and Jesus, as it turns out. But if I were going to pray, I would be like, hey, those guys that you gave me, um, not, not your best move. I mean, you did constellations in the, in the universe, but you missed this one. Right? That's not what he says. So I've, I've taught them, I've given them your words, I've showed them signs so that now they're eyewitnesses. They've, they've seen me, they've heard me with their own ears, and they've touched me. That's what John will say in 1 John. And they believed. They've held on to it. Now they didn't understand it all. No way that at this point did they understand hardly anything. Except that Jesus was who he said he was. He came from God. He was the Messiah. And that was enough for them. I'm praying for them, verse 9. Not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me. For they're yours. Oh, Mine are yours, all yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus is on mission. He's, he's praying. He's on mission to ruin the world. And to restore the kingdom. 
He, he's, um, God has given him everything he needs to do it. And in verse 6, when you read the world, it's the, it's the system by where people are held hostage to sin and prisoners of death. And Jesus came to ruin that. And in doing it, he's going to give us everything, going to give these disciples, and then going to give us everything the Father's given him. Listen, Christianity means, it means being ruined for this world and renovated for his kingdom. It's our story. And our story is the continuation of Jesus' story. Our story is the continuation of his story, his mission. That's where we're going. That's our trajectory. The problem is well, too many people are sitting around here trying to write their own story. And you end up with a far lesser story. Hanging around the church, trying to write your own thing and wondering why you don't look more like Christ. I'm glorified in them, he says. Paul will write, that day he comes, he'll be glorified. That day, trumpet sounds, he comes, he'll be glorified in the saints and marveled at. We'll marvel at him. And then he says things that just you can't hardly believe. Verse 13, but, but now I'm come, or verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me, I've guarded them. Not one of them's been lost except the son of destruction, which is Judas, and that was so scripture would be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you that these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. My joy, my joy gets fulfilled in them. I've given them your word, and the world's hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Now listen, if you're a believer in Jesus and you follow his word, you've received his word, you've heard the testimony, and you believed, you're not in the world anymore. You're not of the world anymore. And the world's going to hate you for it. Because you're not of the world, you're of him. And in verse 15, it's one of those where you think, is this really right? And he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. To be sanctified means to be set apart for a specific purpose. And the word, God's word that comes to us, it sanctifies us. It sets us apart, but it sets us apart for a specific purpose. Two things here. Um, in verse 14 and verse 16, if you underdo things like underline, you could underline, not of this world. 
You see, Jesus said in verse 13, I came, I want my joy to be fulfilled in them. I want them to know my joy, the fullness of my joy. We already talked about that a couple weeks ago. And then he says, not of this world. And so this joy, there is a joy in this mission, in this thing we're called to, in this story that began with Jesus that now we're a part of. And there's a joy Two things keep us from that joy. One is the danger of assimilation to the world. One of the strategies, the ancient strategies in warfare, wasn't that you killed all your enemies, but rather that you assimilated your enemies. Because the loss of identity was the greatest defeat any group of people could experience. We have this danger of being assimilated into the world. Francis Schaeffer said materialism, which is usually materialism, yeah. but he said it's not so much the desire to be millionaires as it is the desire for two things. Here they are. The first one is the desire for personal peace. The second one is a desire for affluence. We'll define that. Personal peace means this. I don't really care what's happening in the world just so long as it doesn't bother me. Right? I mean, all that stuff's really bad, but, you know, as long as it doesn't bother me, I'm okay. That's personal peace. Affluence is this it's just enough money to enjoy life to the full, or enough success, or enough career, or enough education. Or, you know, too many people, believers, that they're just postponing this. So, yeah, I know, I know, I need to get into Jesus' story, I need to get into that story, but. I got to do a few things out here first. I got to tidy some things up. And then, and then, you know, I'll have some time and I'll get into that story. But over here, I got to do this story first. And you say, well, no, that's not me. I don't, I don't do that. Well, let me ask it this way. What do you desire for your children? What do you really want for them? I mean, do you want them to have you know, better life than you have? You want them to be comfortable, have a home, be happily married? Are these the things that are the values and the priorities by which you're parenting and casting vision to your children? If you are, I would say, you're casting vision that is far less than what God has for them. Those desires are far less than God's desires for them. We want to cast vision of being men and women of God. Obedient to his will and willing to follow him anywhere that he would call you. No matter what it meant. And then verse 18, he says this. Sanctify them, your word is truth. And then he says, as you sent me into the world. Let that, as you sent me out of eternity into history. out of forever into humanity. I am sending them. The other great threat is not assimilation. That's one of them. The other one, maybe, maybe this is a bigger threat. I don't know. I, I wonder sometimes. I'd call it isolation. 
You could underline there in verse 18, I've sent them into the world. 17 times Jesus is going to talk about being sent or sending. The purpose of his prayer is for the preparation of the disciples for the story, for the mission that Jesus started. But I will tell you, isolation will rob you of the joy that you've been called to. See, it is possible. We call it different things. Well, I'm just protecting. I'm just, I'm just guarding. I mean, I'm just parenting, whatever it is. This is possible for believers to be born. This is Kent Hughes. To be born of Christian parents, grow up in a Christian family, have Christian friends, go to Christian schools, read Christian books, attend Christian country clubs, known as churches, watch Christian movies, get Christian employment, be attended to by a Christian doctor, and finally be buried by a Christian undertaker in holy ground. He says to go from womb to tomb in a hermetically sealed container decorated with fish stickers. See, we are in danger of functionally rapturing ourselves out of the world. Well, I just don't want those influences, you know. Okay. Listen, instead of people who, instead of seeing ourselves as people who have to retreat from everything, we're people called to restoration of the world through the gospel. I mean, God's doing it. God is doing this. We have been sent with the same thing Jesus was sent with. A restorer. You know what? It's like looking at the world and saying, oh, it's all broken here, but it ought to be like this. Oh, your life is broken, but it, it can be healed. Oh, you're dirty, but you can be clean. We'd find ourselves maybe provoked by it, but not offended at everything, not critical of everything. Looking at those things as opportunities to step in to what we've been sent to. See, we're being sent into the world by Jesus. We have been given everything we need. Most of us have no idea where we're going. Some of you have been in church five years, 10 years, 20 years, but really it's not five years, 10 years. You've just been doing the first year over and over again for five years, 10 years, 20 years. You're not going, you don't know, you don't know what it means. I, if that's the case, you, listen, the sermoning and the singing, all that get old really fast. You get in that story, you get out there, you move in the direction Jesus sent you, and all of a sudden you're like really desperate. I mean, you're like desperate for bad preaching, you know? I just got to get into the Word. I just got to, I need to be with the saints. I just need to, you know. You know where you're going because you know who you follow. Who are you following? All right, so um, verse 20. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, 
that they also may be in us. So the world may believe that you've sent me. Now listen to this. The disciples, first, this is way more discussion than this, but just give you a glimpse. The disciples, these 11 guys, they're going to go out and they're going to be armed with, you know what they're going to be armed with? They're going to be armed with eyewitness account. That's what John's going to say. In fact, I read it from John quicker than I can explain. Don't turn there. Here it is. I mean, it's in your Bible. I'm not trying to keep anything from you. Turn there if you want. But so here's what he says. He says, he opens up his letter. He says, that which was from the beginning, the, the Jesus story that started, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, we touched it with our hands concerning this word of life, The life was made manifest and we've seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim it to you. The eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we've seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowships with the Father. And so we're writing these things so the joy may be complete. They went armed with eyewitness account like they touched God, you, not any of us in this room are going to have an eyewitness account. Not any of us in here are going to touch Jesus. You're not going to hear his voice. But we have the reliable testimony of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and, and James, who's the brother of Jesus who comes to believe after the resurrection. I mean, I'm the oldest of five kids. I think, what would I have to do to get my siblings to believe I was God? To bow and worship me as the creator. It is reliable eyewitness testimony. But we, we have the testimony. We've believed that they saw that and that that happened. But you know what we have? Right here. Verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you and they also will be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. They had eyewitness testimony. You know what we have? We have unity. We have community. We, we have love one another. They'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. If you're a believer and you're not in this, you're not, so I'm not saying, it's not just, God, I love you. And Jesus, I praise you. And I can't wait to be away from all these people. You know, that kind of thing. No, no, no. This is our testimony. We're going to take communion in a moment. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, listen, I'm telling you, I hear there's divisions in your church and you you think you're doing communion. You're not really doing communion. Verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given them that they may be one even as we are one. Did you ever read uh, Three Musketeers when you were growing up? And you read it and go, wait a minute. Why is it called the Three Musketeers? Because there's four of them, right? The reason you find out is that 
about a halfway through the book, two-thirds in the book, you know, it's, it's orthos, pathos, Erasmus, Aramis, whatever, the A one, you know, so I always forget him. Uh, he didn't have very many lines in the movie. So, um, but you realize the fourth one's D'Artagnan, but he's not, he's not there yet. I mean, he's young. These three have this bond, they have this loyalty, they have this thing, and D'Artagnan's give anything to be a part of it. He's part of the royal guard, but he's, he, he wants this, he's aspiring to this. The moving thing is when they take him and they say, now you're one of us. This is what, this is what the triune God has done with us. Come here. You're, you're part of us now. Not weird and mystically. You're not like part of the Trinity. But we share in their fellowship. And I'll show you. Verse 23. I and them, you and me, that they would become perfectly one. So the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And then notice verse 24. Father, I desire that, that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus said, I can't wait for them to see me in all my glory. I can't wait I can't wait until they see they're going to be amazed. They're going to be amazed. Thought about verse 24, wrote it a couple of times. I have no idea what it means. But here's what I do know. That is your future. This story, this mission, this thing you've been sent to, it ends there, or begins there. I, I don't know. It doesn't end. It, that's where it leads you. Right into the center of God glorifying his son for you. It's better than anything we could possibly ever imagine. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you, whom, I, um, whom you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. When I'm seated at the right hand in glory and, and send the Spirit of God to them, I'm going to continue to make it known so that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. Listen, spend the rest of your life in John 17, you'll never get to the bottom of the beauty and power and love and joy Jesus wants for us. It's a vision. He's casting vision. It's a glimpse of the vision of his life. It's a glimpse of the vision of our life. Visions is seeing the, is seeing the, the picture, the thing you know you're called to, the thing that will keep you up late at night, get you up early in the morning. And it has to be big enough and significant enough so that you'd give your life away for it, more like you'd find your life in it. And so we just, we're, it is, we have an epidemic of smaller visions we're all carrying around for our own glory.
why C.S. Lewis says you and I need have need for the strongest spell that can be found to wake us up from the evil enchantment of the world. I pray that's what God would do in us this morning. Wake us up so that we know His joy and His love and His grace and His glory. We'd experience and step into why we are here We've been sent to do Jesus stuff the rest of our life. And it leads to us standing right smack dab in the middle of his glory. We're going to take communion. It's a couple of things as I think about it coming out of this passage. One is an act of worship. Worshiping God. See, the reason we know God is because of what we celebrate in communion and what Jesus did so we could know God. It's an act of worship. It's also an alignment of humility. One of the things about the table, and Paul's real clear about it. No rich or poor in here. This, man, we're all, we're, we're family. It's a, it's a, it's unity, it's community, it's, it's a table of fellowship. In fact, he says, if you have something against a brother, don't eat and drink this until you make that right. It's that important. And it is also a reminder that our work is not done. Paul says, proclaiming his death until he returns. And we are sent so more people would be at this table with us. And at this table around this community in different places. That Christ is exalted through his word. Who are you going to bring to the table with you this year? It's this great opportunity coming in October, City Fest. It's Luis Palau Festival and... You know, start thinking about this. Think about five names you'd write down and say, you know what, Lord, I know, I know who some of these are. Maybe one or two come right to your mind. Say, you know what, I need the boldness and opportunity to share my faith, to tell that story. I'm sent to them. I've known it. I haven't known what to do about it. But I want to. This year I want to. And if there's nothing else, I'll invite them to the festival. Make sure that I'll go pick them up. Who needs to be at the table with us? Who needs to know the joy of Christ with us? When I asked the guys who are going to help us with the communion, if they'd come forward, we will um, wait until we've all been served. We'll partake of the elements together. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you're visiting with us, but you're a believer in Jesus, you put your faith in Him, you're welcome to the table. It's an open table. If, uh, if you haven't done that, I don't, you know, don't, don't take the elements, just, but just watch us. It's, it's the rest of how we're going to worship together.
this morning. Father, we come to you the only way we can in the name of your son Jesus. Because of what he did. Father, he gave his life for us. He became our sin. He endured your wrath. So that we could be clean and whole. In you as you're in him and he's in you. So Father, I pray that this morning you would wake us up if we need to be waked.